Hello, Worcester and the world. You're listening to Public Hearing on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy, where we use real-world examples about the nuance and intersections of this work by focusing in on my home city of Worcester, Massachusetts, the second largest city in New England. On our last episode, we were speaking with District 5 City Councilor Atel Hajiai. We are back with Atel. Um, to continue our conversation as there is so much to talk about and Atel has so much knowledge and wisdom about housing, uh, we couldn't let her go. Um, So Atel, thanks for coming back on the show. And we kind of left off in our last conversation talking about Mill Street collapse. Um, And for listeners who might not be very familiar with the story or lost track of a lot of the the nuance and the coverage that's been happening here. Could you give us a summary of, of what's going on? Yeah, and thanks for having me back. This has been um, an, a, a crisis in my district that really has um, enveloped my the three weeks since it happened in, in a lot of ways. So essentially what happened is that um, Mill Street Pond, it's, it's, it's an apartment complex um, in an area of Worcester off of Mill Street, um, regular people working and living their lives. And the building, the new owner bought the building um, and did some renovations, including roof, balconies, and sliding doors, etc. It just so happens that while they're renovating the roof, all their building, building materials fell essentially through and pancaked five apartments. And so half of the building collapsed um, and it left these residents completely um, homeless. And thankfully, nobody got hurt. Uh, So we're talking about 110 individuals, so 32 units. Um, So what what really uh, happened after that is sort of mind-boggling, and in my view, just extremely disturbing. Um, So basically, 10 days after these residents were displaced because they couldn't stay in their homes, um, the uh, United Way basically put them in a hotel for a week, um, thankfully, just through their own goodness with private funds. And um, the landlord decided to take them to court. So essentially, 10 days after the landlord hires a construction company, dubious construction practices, obviously, um, decides to show up at the lobby of the hotel where they're staying um, and hands out subpoenas to take them to court, essentially to sue them. And for what? Like, that blows my mind. Yeah. That blows my mind. It's it, Yeah, and, and I, I just want to say that the night before, the residents who had been uh, connected to me and uh, Representative LaBeouf sent us text saying, we, we received this notice, we don't understand. So at 8 p.m. at night, the landlord sends an email to all of them, says, hey, I need you to meet, you need to meet me at 8 a.m. in the lobby of the hotel because I'm taking you to court. So there's about 80 families at the hotel, 80 people at the hotel at this at this point. So we, we Representative LaBeouf, Council Nguyen, and I go there to support. And this landlord shows up with a constable handing out subpoenas to people, taking them to, to court because in, in her view, she wants the court to decide uh, to give her permission, basically, to take people, for, for folks to take their belongings out in 10 days. Basically saying to them, you know, you're, I'm, I'm taking you to court to sue you so you can remove the belongings out of a collapsed building while you are homeless for a mistake that you didn't make. In the midst of all of this, also the landlord um, doesn't offer any relocation services, 
doesn't pay for the hotel, doesn't offer a cent to these folks. So what happens is between the city in those first week, the United Way, uh, the Department of Community Housing Development, and other organizations that helped with whatever they could, uh, you know, we were able to have people not rendered homeless in the street, literally, and stay at the hotel. It, it was so disturbing to me that this group of traumatized tenants had to, in the hotel lobby, in a public space, not understanding what's happening, are they being taken to court? So they got taken to court Monday of the following, after they uh, was were given subpoenas, were sent into a building that was not safe at the time. The city hadn't given permission for the landlord to allow tenants to go, to go in. A woman broke her leg because, you know, she went into a building that's not safe. It's dark. It's moist. And to see the visual of... 50 plus people show up in court with no legal representation being sued by this attorney saying, I'm going to send you to Brockton. Oh, we have a facility in Brockton that you could you could go put your belongings in. And thank goodness for the housing court judge who you could tell was visibly upset by how this landlord is treating these tenants who stepped in and said, well, you can't do that. You need to come up with a plan. You need to pay for their storage, their belongings, and the, the moving cost, because that's not their fault. That They didn't create this mess. You did. Um, and so these folks were were um, essentially forced to go to court multiple times, four times, go back to court, you know, render, come up with individual agreements. And, you know, and so what has happened between... July 15th when this happened and now they're still at a hotel. Some of them are crashing with families. Some of them have been able to find apartments. And I forgot to mention to the, 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 the most disturbing part in all of this is that two weeks before the building collapsed, they were also given uh, new leases by the landlord. And then some of them had seen increases of $500 or $400 in rent. And not only that, but they were required to, to, to pay first, last, and security a deposit reflecting the new rent. So in some cases, people had come up with over $3,000 to give the landlord or the landlord was going to evict them. That There are so many layers of that, yeah. obviously. And the one of the first things that jumps to my mind, you know, as we're talking about housing equity is... What are, and I'm very like action oriented thinking, like what are the things that we can do? Like as a city councilor, like as mm -hmm. the council, what policies, practices, procedures could we advocate to put in place mm -hmm. that disallows that type of treatment? You know, I have yeah. a big issue with absentee landlords generally and am looking and trying to think, and again, this is not my specialty area, so I look to folks like yourself who have done a lot of this work for a long time, but like, what are the things that we can do to advocate for as a city that says like, if you are going to be a landlord and, you know, oversee renters in this community, these are the things that you're signing on to agree to. It's tough, right? Because, you know, becoming a landlord is not a registered profession. So mm. anybody can uh, rent and provide housing. And right now, the majority of our housing is provided by private landlords. Um, it's not a regulated industry. And so there aren't a lot of parameters other than, you know, the regular, like you don't, you can't violate um, fair housing laws. That issue of sort of overseeing the fair housing laws really rely sometimes on 
community organizations like community legal aid or housing courts, but it's really hard to document them because people, especially renters, are in very vulnerable positions. You know, we have a large immigrant and refugee population here as well. We have a lot of people who are undocumented. They, most of the time, do not know how to escalate a situation or a violation or abuse because they're scared of retaliation. And we know that retaliation happens. So if you file a complaint code and and or you report your landlord, maybe that landlord doesn't want you there uh, or re- that landlord raises your rent. There's no legal mechanism that we have to stop rent increases from being capped at a certain point because rent control or rent stabilization is illegal in Massachusetts. And the governor indicated and he did uh, shot down the the rent stabilization bill that uh, was put forward. So our hands are tied in a lot of ways. But what we could do is kind of like the things that I was asking on the city council floor. The code and inspectional departments play a huge role both in documenting these violations and doing something about it, right? So that's one legal mechanism that we have through the inspectional services. The problem is like we were talking in our previous episode about our budgets, our moral documents, right? That department in and of itself, we should all be asking why they're so underfunded. Yes, we voted for a rental registry, which I think is a step in the right direction. It's a low-hanging fruit that we should have done a long time ago. Um, But to add just five inspectors is not enough. We are way behind with doing inspections more than once in five years. So that means that there's a ton of housing, especially multifamily housing, that don't get a turn in getting thorough inspections for us to know, well, how much are you charging people? You know, what is the trend that we're seeing in um, in sort of the, the rents being going really high? So one thing I asked when the rental registry was happening is whether we could mandate it so that we know how much landlords are charging. So instead of, do- you know, in, in addition to registering your information, um, and I'll say why that's important, we should also have some data on how our rents are going, right? Right now we have anecdotes. We have people who are being displaced, people like who call and email every day and like I'm living in my car because my landlord decided to raise the rent $500 and I'm on social security income. Um, but why it's important that we connect to Mill Street, that we have information on who's providing housing and where they live and how do we contact them is that in the case of um, the Friends, which I know Bill Shainer did an amazing job at documenting some of their properties, they have over 30 LLCs. You can't tell who's hiding behind an LLC. There's no way to track them. There's no way to know their contact information. So what we're seeing is property managers and landlords and property owners like the Friends getting prop buying property in Worcester, not living like you talked about absentee landlords, not having a stake in providing safe and affordable housing in Worcester. We'll talk about affordable in another day, but at least safe standard, you know, not substandard housing. And something like this happens and they look to us to fix their messes. So they haven't paid a cent towards relocation services for the tenants. They haven't offered to do anything other than take them to court. And to this day, only because a judge ordered them, they offered to pay for relocation services in Worcester, or at least within 25 miles. Originally, they wanted people to go to Brockton because it's more convenient for them, for the landlord. So I think... 
some of the things that we can do through the rental registry is just get a better sense of who's providing housing. How do we hold them accountable through fees and fines when we notice code violations? And how do we boost that department so that they can do more inspections? They can get a handle on the worst property owners, for example, and how do we manage their violations? Yeah, my brain is going in a million directions, so I might not be as articulate as I'm I'm attempting to be. I've seen this at different levels and, and, and different scales as well. You know, and, and, you know, when we talk about kind of anecdotally, you can see like, I live in a building that until the landlords switched over mm-hmm. was in the same person's family for a hundred years since mm-hmm. it was built. Right. And the care that you saw before and after, mm-hmm. like the, the care that the, that person who grew up in that home, who owned it and didn't live there anymore, but felt connected yeah. to it was palpable, right? Like you see the the building now, like if I didn't take care of some of the grounds mm-hmm. around it, there are things growing up through the pavement. You can see yeah. the, the disrepair that can start to occur. And, you know, so when you talk about there not being a lot of like legal pathways or, or protections mm-hmm. for folks, is there anything that we as residents might start advocating for to mm-hmm. say, you know, this this isn't the type of community that we want to to live in. We shouldn't be allowing for folks to own property and live 300 miles away and not, you know, pay some type of mm-hmm. fine or a maintenance fee or and again, this is yep. not my specialty space, yeah, so I'm yeah. I'm sure there are housing advocates like yourself yeah. who are like these are some of the things that we could do now and these are some of the things that we need to advocate for in the future. And is that related to like is it related to, you know, are, are there like layers to zoning or to any any of these yeah. procedures that I guess the, the city has some control over that we could make more stringent? So we could hold permits. We could hold back permits, for example, for a landlord that we know has multiple violations of code. Um, if, they're, if they're seeking to repair or take a permit out for something... We could hold that permit until they have addressed the violations, right? That's usually the city goes through this process called Chapter 139 hearing, where a landlord that has multiple violations goes in front of the city and they either resolve the issue or it gets taken to court. But we could increase some of those penalties, for example. We could hold back on, like I said, uh, giving them a permit for something if they haven't addressed the other issues. Um on a, on a more systemic level, I know Framingham, for example, has an ordinance that places a surge, surcharge tax on vacant properties. So landlords that own vacant properties, they're hit with a, um, a vacant property tax. And so that's, that's maybe some landlords who have a lot of money, it doesn't matter to them, but it's something that we could potentially look into. Um Hopefully, this landlord registry, uh, which basically seeks to be not a, not a punitive sort of measure, but more of a let's figure out where the problem properties are throughout the city. My preference would be to focus on specifically on places and neighborhoods in the city that we know are mostly working people, people of color, immigrants, refugees, so that we tackle those properties first. But hopefully, they'll give us an idea of who's Who's like, who are some of the problem landlords that we know of? And 
Are there carrot and stick measures that we can use both to prevent some of this from happening? Like we know that we have offered incentives in the past, right? So there's money for deferred maintenance. There's incentives for landlords to rent, for example, to families with housing vouchers. We got to also do a lot of educating around discrimination, right? A lot of landlords don't understand because this is not a regulated industry. It's not like you go to a class where you learn the rules and responsibilities of being a good landlord. So we got to do a lot of education on what it means to not break the law. So things like, how many children do you have? Oh, I'm not going to rent you because I need to delay my unit. Or do you have a criminal past? Like this, you can't do that. Um, you can't you can't discriminate based on on your status. But it happens a lot, and so I think it's a multi pronged approach. And I think the last thing that we need to do as residents is when we have ballot measures or we have state legislation that gives municipalities more power and more ability to control some of these things that we really also use our state pressure, our state delegation to vote the right way, right? Because a lot of what municipalities are dependent on are policies that the governor says yay or nay. So rent stabilization, we can't implement it in in Massachusetts uh, or other than Cambridge that's had it for some time because rent control is dead at the state house. So there's a ton of rental protection bills that also died, which is infuriating, like how to provide le- free legal counsel to tenants in court, how to, how to um, allow tenants, if a building gets sold, to give them the right to purchase the, the property, you know, band together, purchase the property, pull some money together with the help of a CDC, for example, to save that building from being commodified. Um, so, so all those things I think we can do, but it's going to need a lot of organizing and municipalities like ours, like all of our state delegation, our city councils, our mayor, they should all be in the forefront of saying we need these policies to protect our residents. It doesn't always happen, but I think we can mobilize better maybe. Yeah. And, and this seems to also be kind of an issue of like wealth at scale as well. Like with, you know, with the, the Mill Street situation seeming that this is, you know, maybe a family that just has a lot of properties and they're using this as a mechanism mm-hmm. for like up maintaining their wealth at a certain level. Right. Yeah. But we're also, you know, I think more and more seeing like these these narratives of like, property ownership is like Mm -hmm. one of the most sustainable ways to like build wealth Mm -hmm. and accrue wealth as, as a, as an individual, as a family. And that is something that has been disallowed access Mm -hmm. for so many folks, particularly folks of color, right. Through Mm -hmm. histories of redlining, et cetera. And so a pathway to home ownership is still one of the most secure ways to build equity and and mm-hmm. and wealth and so my mind is is thinking about and i guess where i'm where i'm getting to mm-hmm. with that train of thought is like there what are the like what are the like levels in which someone's wealth you know allows for us to not necessarily be like treat them differently, but mm-hmm. looking at people who are saying, you know, I'm a millionaire. I have a, I have 20 property holdings. Like I'm a horrible landlord. I allow buildings to collapse and I don't care because I'm writing things off. You know, mm-hmm. I know that I know that. And then the people who are saying like, I am working mm-hmm. to purchase a property in which maybe I then become a mm-hmm. landlord. I'm living in this unit, um, you know, et, et cetera. Um, and so I guess where I'm going is like wealth creation, but also like, 
models in which enable and encourage folks who are mm-hmm. going to be more responsible and mm-hmm. more caring. Yeah. And and maybe that care is hard to legislate. But yeah. um, yeah. you know, people to to be more caring. I, I saw yeah. a model in Atlanta and again, not being super, super familiar with all the like intricacies here, but it was like a lease to own model. Yeah. So the this um property manager or uh owner um owned like 700 properties or something across Atlanta and he developed like a lease to own model so you would come in if you paid your first six months on time you get a 15% discount on rent or something so have Mm. you seen models like that do you advocate for things like that is that something that could be a priority for our community yeah we have a good model actually so Worcester Common Ground runs a community land trust Mm. so an organization buys land and the tenants basically own the the they co-own, they share co-ownership. Um, they're on the board, they run the community land trust. That's one of the good examples, right? It, it does require some investments, right? It requires an organization or CDC usually um, to build the infrastructure. But the tenants are in charge of co-owning, maintaining, having ownership of their building, and they um, you know, can keep the mortgage, if they decide to sell, for example, they can keep the mortgage or rent affordable in perpetuity. 99 years, that's defined in housing world. So like we have models. It's not that we don't have models. The problem is that it requires, again, it requires a lot of capital. So our CDCs are bearing the brunt of creating these models or sustaining these models and building affordable housing communities. Uh, like Maine South CDC had over 700, uh, 1,700 applications for 92 units of affordable housing. So... I think that while you're right, we can't legislate care, we can create models or sustain or put investments into models that have a proven record. And in my view, community land trust co-ops are, or least to own models are some of those things that we can do. Again, it goes back to how do we leverage our state delegation so that they put money in earmarks to support some of this stuff. And then looking at municipal, from the municipal budget, where can we potentially add line items in our budget to support some of these housing initiatives? Definitely. Yeah. And, and the, the other piece is like looking at us comparative to other communities and cities, which sometimes can be a detriment, but also, you know, maybe positive of like, what are ways that we can decentivize mm. people who plan mm-hmm. to be horrible landlords, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. are we able to put sh- more like, stronger, tougher, you know, requirements for um, permits and for the system. I saw there's a big movement right now, I think across mass around, um, I think city councils, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, that are advocating for like fossil fuel, like zero Mm -hmm. fossil fuel construction. Yes. Is that something we can do? Yes, we absolutely can do that. I'm so glad you brought that up. So Governor Baker signed the climate legislation, which has a provision for 10 municipalities to um, essentially eliminate fossil fuel construction and renovation of big buildings. So both is attached to an affordability requirement, which Worcester meets at the 13%. Uh, but also we are seeing a boon in real estate development. So so I'm I'm hearing that climate activists are interested in pursuing that and certainly would have to go through city council, through a home rule petition. But it's something that I don't think we can wait on. And I'm sure it's going to be controversial. Um, but what's more controversial than our kids not having a future? Mm. 
Well, we've been talking to District 5 City Councilor Atel Hajiai. Thank you so much for being here. If there were two to three things that you would leave for kind of parting wisdom for our listeners, maybe an action that you hope folks in our community could take, what would that be? So I'm going to push on one thing that's upcoming. September 13th, City Council is going to hear the Program for Inclusionary Zoning, a draft. Um, I know local advocates and myself included and others on council have been pushing for this program which sets aside affordable housing units for folks that are making low to moderate income um, level income to to basically center them. So if folks could respond to calls of action that will come through either myself or other advocates or other people on council, it would be amazing to call in, write your city councilors and say, we need inclusionary zoning, we need it now, and we need it to center people who need it the most. Great. Well, thank you so much, Atel, as always, for coming on Public Hearing. For listeners, you are listening to Public Hearing, our podcast and radio show that airs Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, and can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. Public Hearing is our show about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and the pursuit of joy-filled futures for everyone. I'm your host, Joshua Croak, founder of Action by Design, where we help organizations coalesce and cities imagine and materialize those equitable, just, and joyful communities through art and design. Get even more connected to our show at publichearing.co. Our audio producer is Giuliano D'Arazio, who also wrote and produced our show music. Also thanks to Kelly Kajurik and Molly Gammon, who also support the production of this show. The work continues, Worcester. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.